I'm Phoebe Lover and this is Intellectual Property, a conversation series exploring the ideas and references that have shaped the minds of our world's most influential creative thinkers. Additional resources, including full transcripts, are available at i-p.world. This episode's guest is Benji B, a world-renowned DJ, long-standing BBC Radio 1 host, co-founder of the iconic Club Night Deviation and musical director for Louis Vuitton. Benji is also a fellow born and bred Londoner, but we recorded this conversation in New York. I hope you enjoy it. One, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. One, two. Hi. Hi, Benji. Hey, Phoebe, love it. What's your full name? My full, my government name or my uh, name name? Do you give away your government name? Not, I mean, at hotels, yeah. You what? know, when I check in, but um, how, apart from that, how, I'm known how, as how Benji How do you like B. to be known? Benji B. You can call me Benjamin, Benji, Ben. Ben? And that's it. Okay. And what do yeah, you all do? all of those three things. What's are your job title? Name. I work with music. Okay. Yeah, and basically in that, do lots of different things. Probably best known for DJing. And having a radio show is probably what I'm best known for, but obviously do lots of other things to do with music as well. Okay, cool. Well, thank you for doing my podcast. And the reason I'm doing this podcast is because I want to speak to people like yourself, people who I think have had a a sizable impact on the fields in which they work, particularly people who work in creative fields, to learn about how you got to where you are but not necessarily in a career climbing sense but more in a sort of like learning and education sense okay so i'm going to ask you a bit about your actual education your formal education mm-hmm. your scholastic education what does scholastic mean school ish okay. schooly okay. and then also your informal education which is kind of people places books and for you i guess pieces of music that have kind of informed your learning journey and kind of brought you to the point you're at now. Okay. Does that sound all right? Yeah. All right, so we're going to start by, like I said, talk to me a bit about your school days. Where did you go to school and what was school like for you? So I went to a school called Hendon School in North London and basically the reason I ended up going there was because I didn't get into any of the schools that were close to me. But it obviously happened for a reason because it was really good. I think overall it was good. Like any school experience, it had like really rough ups and downs and like crap moments and scary moments and stuff but what I took from school was like less of an academic thing and more of a social thing Mm. because where I went to school was just very 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 like average British comprehensive mixed school or more specifically average London comprehensive mixed Mm. school and so to be a citizen of London is to be a citizen of the world straight away and that's certainly reflected in schools I'm really happy that I went somewhere that had like the full spectrum of economic bracket and different ethnicities, different backgrounds, different. I think actually the dominant, the the dominant background in my school was probably Indian subcontinent. Mm-hmm. So the most commonly spoke language in my school was Gujarati. So I grew up with Indian and Pakistani culture strong mm-hmm. in my school, and then we had strong West Indian culture as well. A lot of Jamaican kids or first generation Jamaican kids. Yeah. And the thing is about the age that I I am specifically is that it, a lot of the kids I went to school with, not all of them, but a lot of them were first generation British. Yeah. So when you went to their parents' house after school, you were going to Pakistan or you were going to Jamaica yeah. or you were going to these different places because you'd walk into these homes. And, you know, I grew up totally understanding the difference between the religions in different countries and, you know, Eid and uh, like a lot of Jewish community in that part of North London as well. It was a opportunity to understand culture really and the beautiful thing about it is there's not like a conscious awareness that you're understanding culture it just is what it is like when you're 11 years old and you go to a Jewish household one day and then a Pakistani household and then a sort of West Indian household and a Japanese actually there were quite a few Japanese kids at my school as well you just think that's normal Mm. and it is normal where I come from in many ways I think that was an important part of school was just people understanding people and culture and food cuisine languages like music music for sure and so it wasn't like particularly amazing academically or like from a school perspective but 
I was fairly happy there, you know, it was cool. I mean, it was pretty rough, but all schools in London are rough. How did your interest in music sort of begin? Was that at school? Or well, I mean, it's important to say that, like, academic music and doing music in any sort of educational form now as a generalisation is, like, light years ahead of what it was when I was at school. Yeah. Like, I mean, unrecognisable. You know, like it's a legit thing to now go and do music technology or, you know, you could probably go and learn how to use Ableton or something at mm -hmm. school, which is, I'm so happy about that it's developed into that. And sadly for me, that wasn't an option. Generally, the arts in the era that I grew up was just sort of considered some like indulgent specialist add-on to the basics, you know. So when you go to do your GCSEs at, you know, 14, 15, 16, there's all the like mandatory subjects that you have to do and then we had to choose between art drama and music mm. and for me obviously those three things go together and I wanted to do all three mm. but I wasn't allowed to I had to That's choose such a cruel choice it's a cruel choice yeah and also you know music practice the most kind of like alternative that music practice got in those days was like jazz band mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know that's like apart from that it's like all classical and choir basically. So if you did music, you had to be in the choir, certainly until your voice breaks if you're a boy. And then I learned saxophone from when I was seven. So I played that all through school and I was in all the bands and everything, but they also used to do this thing where they'd put it against sports. So the, I could never be in the football team mm. because I had to choose whether you wanted to do music or, or sports. It's like, it was so backwards. Mm. But now it's obviously completely different. So in answer to your question, yeah, I did do music at school. I did music GCSE and music A-level. And um, both were crap, really crap. So much so that it put me off doing any sort of higher education in music whatsoever. You know, I had the opportunity. I got into the Brit School. I got offered a place at the Brit School. I was thinking about going to see about Royal College of Music and Trinity and all that. And even like, uh, you know, the dream... I had no money, but the dream was to like go to like Berkeley School of Jazz in the States or whatever. But it just like academic music just put me off completely. So yeah, I went to Hendon School until I was 16. And then between 16 and 18, I went to a college in North London to do my A-levels. By then I'd sort of like checked out really. I was working already by 16. Working doing what? I was, um, well, I had a, a job on the weekends, like making money, but in terms of my what I wanted to do, I was already working at Kiss FM by 16. And how did you get your way in there? I just walked up to the guy whose radio show I liked and said, this is a true story and it's been repeated a number of times, so it's a bit boring to repeat it again, but it's kind of funny. I went up to him in a club and I said, I really like your radio show, but I can make it better. Yeah. And he said, all right. Who's that? It's Giles Peterson. Oh yeah, that guy. Presumably if you were listening to Kiss FM and like, had you know the confidence to tell a DJ on there that you could make a show better, that you had some exposure to music beyond, like you say, this academic. Context, oh no, which man! Is really My, yeah, no. The, 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 so who was teaching? The, you? you asked me. The only reason I'm talking about that is because you asked me about school. Yeah, and that's no, no, that's and why I, it's relevant to the thing. But me doing music at school has, I wouldn't say no relevance, but like micro micro relevance to my musical journey. Yeah, it was almost like. Um, when I was at school, doing music was like learning, like in your exam, you'd have to know like when Beethoven was born. <laughs> All the key facts. Like literally, literally, when did Mozart die? What year did he write this? Yeah. And to me, I couldn't think of anything less relevant mm. to my journey and what I'm interested in. Like I'm obviously interested in those guys. They're amazing. But like I'm interested in their music, you know, I was interested in listening to it or working out what it made me feel or was I into it or, it was a bit like the music version of art history, basically. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? That was what the option was at mm. school. So the, the reason I'm talking about music at school is because you've asked me about music education, but my education in music came from everything but school. Mm. It started from a very early age. I mean, like most people in any art form, I'm completely self-educated. Because by definition of being into something, you have to be self-educated, right? Because it's a process of discovery. Whatever crates you're digging in, it might be your parents' crates, or it might be, now it might be the internet or Discogs or Instagram or Resident Advisor or whatever it is. And for me, it was like pirate radio and record shops and stuff like that. Yeah. So when you become passionate about any subject, it's just about that process of discovery. So 
I was obsessed with the radio from an early age. I used to listen to like Capital Radio One, all the commercial stations when I was like a baby. And I've still got cassettes, like pause button cassettes I'd make of like the chart show. And I was really into the radio. And then of course, like as I got sort of like eight, nine, ten, I discovered pirate radio. And I didn't know what to call the music. But that's the beautiful thing about being a kid is that that doesn't matter. You're into what you're into. So I had very unusually grown up taste for a kid. <laughs> what were you listening to when you were nine? Well, no, I mean, like, I was listening to what everyone else was listening to, which is like Madonna, David Bowie and like pop stuff, Michael Jackson. Yeah. But also listening to like Charlie Parker and John Coltrane and stuff yeah. like that. And I guess that's because I was playing saxophone and anytime you get a bit of sheet music to play on saxophone, it's like Charlie Parker, Ben Webster, John Coltrane, da, da, da. And so I was listening to a lot of that music. And then really the biggest impact for me and this is definitely me showing my age, but the biggest impact for me was Public Enemy. And when I discovered that and the production on that, that just took me in a whole different direction. But that's what's amazing about when you look at kids, you look at like a seven or eight year old kid and you think, oh, they're only seven or eight. But actually those sort of musical moments that are happening in their life is sort of the compass point set that might take them where they're going. Certainly like I was so on it as a kid. I started buying my own records about 10 or 11. I think I was allowed 50p to buy one seven inch a week. Where did you buy it from? Our price, obviously. <laughs> our price? Literally. Literally our price, because Literally. our price had an offer, right? I remember it, our price had an offer and it was probably like record companies like rigging the charts or whatever. But I remember they used to have an offer where you could buy a seven inch for 50p on the week that it came out. What was the first one you bought, you remember? No idea. What were the, some of the earlier ones? I've found loads of them though. Oh, like I used to buy all the pop stuff. Um, like I said, uh, you know, it's funny. I did an interview with Nile Rogers a few years back. Okay. If you have time. I should listen to it. No, no. I mean, you need time because it was supposed to be 90 minutes and it ended up being four hours. Oh my God. Yeah. And, I mean, um, that makes sense to me because he does every night. He plays a show for like five hours, doesn't he? Yeah, it was incredible. I mean, it, we got to the end of the first bit of the lecture. It was in, it was like a public lecture for Rebel Music Academy in Madrid, right? We got to the end of it and I think we'd only got to like 1981 or something. Oh my God. And, I, and so I said to everyone, do you want to keep going? And they said, yeah. But what Niall Rogers made me realise is that the effect that a producer can have on you without you knowing it before you know what a producer is. Because to answer your question, what's the David Bowie song that I liked? What's the only Duran Duran song that I liked? What's the Madonna Like a Virgin that... It was all produced by him. Yeah, I but mean, I was buying those he's seven a, he's inches. He's a major common thread, isn't he? Yeah, like, but, but, but it's important to recognise that the radio is having a massive effect because that's what you're exposed to, but you're also making your own taste choices yeah. that early on. Yeah. And you're not sure why that is, but you're responding to those things. So. Yeah. But I, um, I was obsessed with Michael Jackson like any other kid my age. That was like the king, mm -hmm. you know. And then I was also started to become really interested in music that was not from that time but from before so things like James Brown just obvious stuff that you just discover and I discovered that stuff quite early on in life by yourself yeah well the first the most important musical discovery channel for me was my dad's record collection so my dad's had an incredible collection of records what's beautiful about going through someone else's records is that you make your own collection out of it mm -hmm. so you find different things and you're not like discriminating between genres or what you think you're supposed to like or anything like that at that age so you'd mm -hmm. listen to like weather report and joe zawinul in the same way he'd have everything so he had a lot of stevie wonder a lot of curtis mayfield and motown and stuff like that but then also had loads of like crosby stills and nash and Joni mitchell and that kind of area of music and then obviously what was going on in the pop world at the time sade and da 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 so so was he showing you, was he like sitting you down and making you listen to it or was there any... Like no, he just let me go through the records really. And when I remember his flat in South London, I grew up like half North London, half South London. And he had Oh, that's weird. Yeah. You're I the first I, person I've ever met who had that experience. I hold, I sort of hold dual passport. Wow. I mean, anyone who's not, who's listening, who's not from London, maybe will not understand. Yeah, they will. They totally will. That's like saying I'm, I rep no, Harlem and Brooklyn at the same time. Yeah, true. Okay, that's a good analogy. But it is such a, the northwest, the north-south <coughs> divide of London is, is quite a profound one. Yeah, man. I mean, so um, I owe a lot of my early musical discoveries to having a great record collection to dig into. Mm. And then I guess my relationship, like I learned, you know, 
to play saxophone. I used to play this uh, it music from Indonesia, gamma. I used to do loads of different music and play lots of different music. And Who was teaching you to play saxophone? My teacher was called Chris. And I can't remember his surname and that's terrible. But I kind of just checked out of it all when I discovered records and DJ culture. How, and, and you did that by just going down to archives? And... No, I didn't. That was just me buying into... That was what you bought music on, was records so how at did that you time. Learn it? Well, I think the first time I ever saw a DJ with a sound system was definitely Notting Hill Carnival yeah. when I was a kid. And then Public Enemy, DJ and Public Enemy was Terminator X. And when I saw them live, there'd be this huge X on the stage and the DJ playing. Yeah. And I thought that was amazing. But I grew up with pirate radio. So you're listening to people mixing and cutting records and all the rest of it all the time. My dad's friend, Robert, was the only person I knew that had Sky or any kind of cable TV. And he was also American and had a place here. So he used to take Yo! MTV raps for me. And I was obsessed with that. And I remember all those films coming out, like Breakdance and all the rest of it. It was nice, Yeah, yeah, it really was. And he used to bring them over. And so I remember all of that. Like There was an arena documentary on BBC Two that was made by Alan Yentov, I only found out years later, which was about hip-hop. And I remember just staying up as a kid and watching that and it blowing my mind. Mm-hmm. And then uh, breakdance movie, you know, all the obvious stuff. Mm-hmm. It's, you're a sponge at that age. I mean, I could probably talk for hours just about my influences, but it's not even that interesting to listen to because the interesting point to take from it is just the fact that we're all our own thumbprint. Mm-hmm. Like I can't be you, you can't be me, we, you, you know, mm-hmm. like the day that you're born and the neighborhood that you grow up in and your first clubbing experiences and your radio experiences, like they're shaping the DNA of us musically all the time. Mm. So your reference points are probably more similar to mine than someone that's not from my city, but at mm. the same time, they're still different. Mm. It's kind of interesting. So when you, when, when was the point you decided that you were gonna try and make music at your career? I've been lucky because I've just taken one thing as it, at a time, I've never really had goals and like, five-year plans and stuff like that I've just sort of gone with it but I would say probably around 16 Mm. because if this is sort of like education based this talk then it's worth pointing out that by 16 to 18 my peer group and my friendship group was like way older than the people I was going to school with yeah so the people I was hanging out with were like 12 years older than me or 10 years older than me Mm -hmm. and how come I don't know I just sort of fell into it really from being into clubs and having quite like grown up taste in music what and clubs were you going to at that time? Uh, that time we'd go so there was there was the jungle era. So there was uh, all those jungle raves and all the regular things. And then outside of the bigger parties like that, the more specific promotions would be things like That's How It Is at Bar Rumba, Metalheads at the Blue Note, uh, Speed at Mars Bar. And then later on sort of Garage came in and, you know, house. I we used to go to like hard times at Camden Palace and jungle fever I mean there's just so many different things but it was like at that period in time you could you know how in New York you can just go out any night Mm -hmm. if it's Tuesday there's something happening Mm -hmm. it was very much like that in London at the time but with music and every single night there being someone you know you could go and see hear like Kenny Dope on a Thursday and then hear like your favorite drum bass DJ and then you could hear like a hip-hop DJ you know on a Saturday and then every single night you could go out and so I did. And so from the age of sort of... How did you find out about things that were going on before the internet? <laughs> um, weirdly, more easily, because the channels from where they came were, were like more specific. Yeah. So radio, raves, right, adverts on the yeah. radio, uh, pirate radio specifically, but also just like time out yeah. and like flyers. So you'd go to a record shop like Black Market Records or something yeah. and there'd just be like mountains and mountains of flyers. Mm-hmm. And I think that if you're part of a specialist culture, then you make it your business to know everything that's happening. So I could go into a record shop at that period in my life, look at the rack and know if there was one record in there that I didn't know, I'd just like, oh, let me check that out. And then you'd take like a, a sort of a massive stack of flyers and you'd know what was happening in the city, you know, and who was playing where and what was happening. It's like, it was a thing. So you, you were hanging around with people who were 10 years older than you, mostly men? Like, what was your friendship group like? No, it was really mixed. I guess I was really 
launched into sort of like music world and hanging out with DJs and people that went out and club culture. You know, I grew up in real club culture. I grew up with people that go to clubs mm-hmm. like that, go to music, that music heads, but also people that know how to be in clubs. That's why I really respect the generation before me a lot mm. because they kick the door down for us a lot. And they also come from a generation where it's more pure. That sort of like Hacienda, Acid House, whichever genre, that era of going out is sort of like, I don't know, I can't really explain it. They just, I learned a lot from hanging out with that lot. Like what? Like, like fundamentally, it's sort of like the opposite of now. It's almost like you go in there in order to not take a picture. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's also, certainly in, in the culture that I grew up with, it's like, I guess in the UK, we have a lot of problems with class, you know, mm-hmm. and it was the one era where it, the situation where none of that mattered. Mm-hmm. Like you could be working class and be the biggest DJ, mm-hmm. but you could also be something else and be welcome in the right. It was like, it was, some of the parties I went to were a bit like scary and stuff sometimes and different, but that was part of the discovery of it. And I can't really explain it. It was like, it was just like rave culture. And, you know, we in the UK use the term rave to just describe a party. It's not like if you say you're going raving, it means you're going out. It doesn't mean in the US where I'm literally going to like a field, (laughs) you know, or of course it did mean that at one point, but then it just became slang. I don't really know what I'm saying, really. I'm just saying that like in terms of race, class, sexual orientation, gender, all of that stuff, it did not matter. And especially in terms of who was playing the music as well. The thing that's changed like radically and nothing that I say in this podcast will be anywhere close to all remember when or they don't make them like that anymore because Mm -hmm. obviously in so many ways we're like light years ahead of where we've been. Mm -hmm. But I have to say that I think the meritocracy element of music specifically has gone backwards. In what sense? In the sense that in that era the only thing that mattered was can you bring it? Like Mm -hmm. are you good? So it didn't matter if you were fat or thin or a boy or a girl or whatever. Like, especially in a genre like drum and bass or jungle. If you went to Metalheads, it'd be like Kemi and Storm, two girls would be playing or there'd be like a sort of slightly fat guy in the booth or there'd be like, you know, a white guy with a ponytail, a rude boy with a gold tooth. Like, you know, it didn't didn't matter. Mm -hmm. What mattered was what was coming out of the speaker. And that was the thing that got you respect. So in a way, I think that that part is quite an interesting thing to talk about my education, is that my education was like, that's how I'll be successful. Like somewhere in my DNA is like, well, my currency is looking for that sort of approval from my peers. It's looking from that authenticity. It's my thing is like, oh yeah, you played good, as opposed to you became famous. Obviously there's always been like profile, massive profile DJs like Paul Oakenfold or Carl Cox, people like that who have become massive and their music fills stadiums and, you know, they'll play to 50,000 people in Jakarta or whatever. But it was almost like a product of being good at something mm-hmm. rather than press, you yeah. know, and obviously now the modern incarnation of that is, is followers and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So how did you go about becoming good? Like, what, the what's only, your approach to that? Well, the, that, that's my point really, is that there was only one route to it and that was to really know your records and to really become good and have something to say, musically speaking. Yeah. And to just plug away, you know. I mean, we're doing this podcast in like a suite, in a, <laughs> in a, in a hotel. But, you know, when I was 18, my expectations were like, if you said, come and play in this wine bar for free and I'll give you a drink, I would have been like, yeah. That sort of plugging away at it and eventually getting the recognition of your peers. You know, I remember when people like Fabio and Groove Rider or Giles or those people would like say what I did was good I'd think that was my payment mm. <laughs> so yeah I mean it's uh it's sort of like that's one thing that I think that it's fantastic that we're concentrating so much on inclusion and making sure that there's gender balanced lineups because it has been so like stacked the wrong way it's been such a boys club but mm. I do think that the focus on all the things other than what it is that you do takes away from the fact that that stuff used to matter less. Yeah. I remember reading something about that Zadie Smith wrote recently. We shouldn't write it recently, but I read it recently about the kind of era of London that she grew up in, which I think 
she's a few years older than you, but you know, she's kind of same era, same part of London, talking about London as if she said London, you know, in, in that era, and it, it really was a small golden moment. And I wouldn't say, sadly, I even feel that it exists now, but it was like really kind of utopian or as close to a sort of, you know, multicultural utopia as has ever existed and maybe will ever exist again, this kind yeah. of moment. And I, I think I grew up, like growing up in London in the, not quite a generation younger than you, but like a, at the tail end of your generation. Mm-hmm. That being my London and the London that I grew up in and like, how much yeah it kind of gave me this golden perspective on yeah how multiculturalism can be and and not just then i think that that plays into a lot of what you're talking about definitely in terms of the music scene it was kind of like a a very inclusive time i think yeah but it had to be i mean you had to come with respect you you're coming into the same shared space as loads of people with mad different backgrounds and everything so it's like a yeah. an exchange and a learning process and also what I find sad about the wholesale kind of like um, you know I won't name any names but I just feel like so much media at the moment is based around like auctioning off authentic culture to the highest bidder mm. you know what I mean and it's like no no the point is you can't just like pick up an experience and then recreate it like you could do that for one night for something like Paradise Garage or Studio 54 for like a fun themed party of course mm. but like you can't just recreate twice as nice in Dalston like part of it was going to Coliseum in Vauxhall mm. and having to wear not wear trainers and you're going to that thing mm-hmm. you can't make that thing your thing you can't just go oh let's just plonk it in a place that I feel comfortable mm. part of going clubbing was going outside your comfort zone it took me to parts of London I'd never been before. Yeah. First club I ever went to was Hammersmith Palais. I'd never even been to Hammersmith before. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Literally, I remember getting on the bus and going, what's Hammersmith? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like 14. <laughs> like going to Hammersmith, what is that? Yeah, no, kind of. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. the first time you, you go into a neighbourhood that's not yours or whatever. It's like, that was a huge part of it. And so I'm not like misty-eyed saying the overall culture was more advanced. It wasn't. Like you know, post Thatcher sort of like 90s mainstream culture was definitely not more advanced than it is now. We're in a much better place now in terms of if you turn the TV on or you turn the radio on what you hear. But club culture has always been counter to that. And if you look at the history of the city where we're sitting, like the garage, the mud club, Danceteria, CBGBs, you know, all of these places created a sort of collision point that created a tidal wave that we are literally still surfing now culturally speaking Mm. and that happened because of that meeting of different people uptown downtown all these different scenes coming together and what you're trying to describe is just that it's literally just that that's why the hacienda everyone like talks about it in such misty-eyed things i never went there obviously because i'm too young but my version of that is like london where you leave your bullshit at the door and you come in those are the things that shape culture half of the clubs that I just described from New York I didn't go to but I know from just facts that they were celebrating some of the most marginalized people in New York society Mm -hmm. you know basically black Latin and gay and so the coming together of different cultures in places like the loft with Mancuso or Paradise Garage, the reason that those places are folkloric to people like me is because that's beyond just the music. That's exactly what I've grown up standing for my whole life because of music. I've met all of these different amazing people, ages and races and types of people. It sounds almost cheesy to talk about it and there's no way of saying it, but it is, that's the beauty of music and that's the beauty of club culture when it's at its truest form. I mean, my father is a club culture journalist or was for years, so you don't need to sell me on the virtues yeah. of, of nightlife. And, and I, you know, I think I, I actually, again, just being a little bit younger than you, kind of feel that I came of, like, dancing age at the end of that era mm. or as it was beginning to draw to a close and, and kind of reiterate into whatever it is now. And I have always felt really kind of sad about that because I understand... Or, you know grew up with this kind of like deeply embedded 
understanding and exposure of what nightlife and club culture actually meant to yeah. a generation of people yeah. and how informative, educational, mind-opening, unifying it yeah. really was. Yeah. And it m- makes me a bit, you know, depressed now that there's a perception of going out, that it's kind of vacuous and it's... Well, it's important to recognise that that has always existed. Right. You know, what, what happened in the sort of late 2000s was that thing of going out or going out to go to the hip new place or to kind of be like to the hype thing or to be seen or to get high or to meet a potential partner or whatever. Like that's always been going on. But also what's been going on is this kind of like posturing version of going out. That's existed everywhere in London, New York, everywhere forever since like post-war, whatever, since the 60s, people have been trying to get into the cool place, you know. But what happened was at a certain point in the last kind of like 15 years is that those two worlds merged somehow. Right, right, right. So that thing has become connected to this thing. And in actual fact, like it's not, I don't want to really sound negative because in a way all evolution is positive, but the best way I could sum it up really from a DJ perspective, and I'm not necessarily saying that either one of these things is better. I could just sum it up as it being different by saying this and this alone, is that when I went out to clubs, you know, in the sort of height of going out every night, like from 16 to sort of 24 or something, I went out specifically in the hope that I would hear music that I'd never heard before. Yeah. So of course we all love hearing our favorite tune in the club, but I would go to the club thinking, what am I gonna hear tonight? Or I'd wait till the lights came on, I could probably afford one drink and the night bus home and I'd just be like, I'm gonna stay to the end because he or she might play some tune that I've never heard before. And now people go out in order to hear the songs that they were listening to on the way to the club, mm-hmm. in the car, you yeah. know. And familiarity is king now. So discovery is less attractive or less important to people because they want to feel the confidence of knowing what the experience is gonna be before they get there. Mm. They wanna see the photo on their phone of what it looks like inside. They wanna see what kind of people are gonna be, you know. There's that, that discovery thing is sort of gone. It's neither, it's just where it is. How do you approach discovery now that you're not like a starry-eyed 16-year-old on the dance floor? In pretty much the same way, but it's different because I don't go out for fun as much as I used to. So you still do go out to find new music? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. how and where? Exactly. That's the problem. <laughs> I'm but, like, how, but, and how does that work? But, for you? Well, well, for me, I've I've always done the same thing in terms of finding music. You know, I go record shopping. I'm like the the, the streams of like discovery just change. So it's yeah. no longer like ten record shops in Soho. It's now streaming. It's iTunes. It's blogs. It's record shops. It's online. You know, it's everything. Mm-hmm. So it's more complicated. But in terms of going out, there's a certain healthiness to the fact that I don't necessarily know all of you know that's the natural order of things Mm -hmm. like it shouldn't whatever the newest most cutting edge thing that's coming out is not going to be coming from me because I'm no longer at that bleeding edge of this do you know what I mean it's like it's sort of I'm where I'm at and so what you hear coming out of the speakers that I play through will always be true to where I'm at but it would be totally ridiculous for me to sit here and say oh there's nothing good going on because you know what there might be some amazing party in Bedsty right now that I don't know about <laughs> or there might be some amazing party in Peckham or whatever that's just like the equivalent of what that's how it is or deviation was do you know what I mean but I just don't know about it I don't, maybe I don't so what what now obviously now your you know your career encompasses you're not like a club DJ that's not your first and you do still do do that but you do a lot of other well, things weirdly, as well it kind of is yeah I, I, I mean, you are still a club DJ. What I mean is you do other stuff as well. Yeah, yeah. And like, I always have. I think that's the important thing. Like, I could never just be a DJ. Yeah, I never went to university because my life, like I always lived in a vocational kind of, I was working in, I knew what I had to do for the job that I wanted to do. And it was more about, I felt at that time, rightly or wrongly, that university would just set me back four years mm. instead of advancing me four years. Yeah. Now I'm older and sort of like have a more mature view on things, I would probably think, well, actually, it's not about that. It's about the people you meet and exercising your brain in a different way. But at that point, in that era, 
unless you're really posh or really rich or something, the point of university is to kind of learn how to get a job. Yeah. I already knew that my job was not one that you could get at univer- you know, with a university thing and that, that music was not necessarily going to help me either at university and that I was already well on my way because I was already working for free on a Sunday night at Kiss FM in a live radio studio, already had guest lists to like all the clubs. You know, I was that kid. I was just that kid. I was the cool kid that went out to all the things and da da da. And so I was already on my way. And then in the summer when I was doing my A-levels, there was a festival, essential festival in Finsbury Park. I remember I got headhunted for my first job while I was still at school. So at uh, the festival? Yeah, someone came up to me and was like, look, we'd really like you to come and work at our production company. It was a guy called Jez Nelson, who is a radio producer. So basically on the last day of A-levels, I remember, you know, they do those exams that start at like 8 a.m. or something. Yeah. And I think it finished at 11 and everyone went to like burn their books and write on each other's shirts and go to the pub and whatever. And I got on the Northern Line and went for my first day at work. At the production company. Yeah, and then worked every day since. So I've sort of been on this work one since literally the same day as the very last day of education I've been working. It's very easy for me to sit here and go, oh, yeah, you know, DJing around the world, fabulous, da da da. No, I had a day job from 18 to 23, producing, like doing this, what we're looking at right now. <laughs> setting like, up the microphones, setting up, I have no idea. Setting how. up microphones and um, post production, audio editing, making radio shows. I was a radio producer for five years, did, did well in that. I won this Sony Gold age, like 19, which is. We had to lie about my age, I think, to the radio station because it was like, you weren't supposed to be a producer unless you were 30 or something. Right. But I just really went for it at that stage. I was yeah. living like in a way that I couldn't now, where it was just like 24-hour living, really. Yeah. Oh, the energy of you. Yeah. I mean, going out all night and then coming and then making radio programs and da-da-da-da-da. That was really how I got heavily, heavily, heavily into radio. But I've always done other stuff, done radio, DJing, production, worked a little bit in the industry. So you wouldn't say that you had much self-doubt in terms of navigating your career in music? I would say that I have loads of self-doubt, but I know there's only one thing I'm absolutely sure about, and that's what I like in music. Yeah. I'm useless in the rest of life. (laughs) But in that one thing, I know what... I've got a very, very clear idea of whether I like something or don't. Mm-hmm. And beyond that, whether it fits into the sort of vibe of what I do as a DJ or not. Mm. And so, yeah, I didn't have like a, I guess like, it's interesting because I think if you set your mind to something, you can do it. I don't think I set my mind to one thing specifically, but I don't think it's a coincidence that I used to obsess over the radio. And obviously in the UK, there's no bigger radio station than Radio 1. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like I guess it stands to reason that, like my internal compass point was probably set to yeah that, and then you end up there. If you be- well, if you're someone who believes, for example, in the law of attraction or visualization, that it wasn't even a conscious thing for you to have to visualize that. It was just your yeah your north star, like you. That was it. Like yeah. Sheer laser focus, and not even in like I'm going to get a job on Radio One and have root. Yeah, no, yeah, just like that's my life. That's my. Yeah. Sp- fear of like yeah. focus and there's nothing else that's going to be able to come in except you know and I don't I'm loath to like skip a huge chunk of your career as um you know a DJ and a radio DJ but just to kind of bring it a bit more up to the present like now obviously you've you've moved your musical career has veered into fashion mm. and I just wondered if you could speak a bit about you know that it's a new chapter for you I would say right ish I've been, yeah, I mean, sound design or whatever kind of like fancy way you want to describe that world is not new for me. I've been doing that for a long, long time. But it's a new application. Yeah, it's a new application. I mean, I've been in that world for maybe like seven, eight years now. So it's relatively new. And can you just Um, talk to me a bit about some of the stuff you've done in that world and sort of like maybe things that you've had to, you know, how you've had to sort of like adjust the way that you've you've applied your knowledge before to a new industry and a new setting? Yeah, I mean, it's all instinct and it's all just learning. So I just have a rule of thumb that I just work with people that I think are interesting and cool. (laughs) That sounds like really privileged, but it's actually not. It's like actually really does you a disservice sometimes because you might miss out on a check or Mm -hmm. you might miss out on things. But I just 
try and do that you know and I do try and do things that are interesting and it started on Savile Row really a couple of people there I worked with on Savile Row and then I worked with a guy called Jason Basmajan uh, who was creative director at Gives and then is now at Chiruti and I've worked on quite a lot of kind of clothes related stuff and then obviously the other side to it is that I've always had a relationship with from Bond International Days all the way through to now or Union in New York or whatever all the way through to now like so I've been involved in the openings of like the Supreme stores or Stussy staff or whatever mm-hmm. so I've always had this sort of like dual relationship with clothes more recently I guess I did what's better known I guess is that I did the I was musical director at Celine for the last few years mm-hmm. and then more recently obviously working with Virgil in his position as creative director at Louis Vuitton Men. so to be honest with you it just feels really natural and it's interesting for me because it's like learning a new discipline it's absolutely not like oh let's just put three cool tunes together for a runway show it's mm-hmm. like much more involved than that I mean, if someone started saying to me, oh, well, the thing is we've got, you know, 40 looks and the boys are walking at like 10 second intervals and that means that basically if we cut down to 37, then we're going to look like... That would have been a foreign language to me. Mm -hmm. But now I understand when people Mm -hmm. start talking to me that way. So I just did the uh, Poiré show with Yichin Ying last week and it was funny. There was a moment like where they were talking like that and someone just looked at me like, what? But they were kind of like, if someone... I know the difference between... If models walk at like 11 seconds or 12 seconds and yeah. how many looks and how long a show is going to be and the difference in dynamic between programming you know music for like 8 minutes 30 or 12 minutes 30 is like radically different basically mm. so um, it's the same principle I've always used I'm just digging in my own crates really it's like you don't realise that you have an encyclopedic knowledge of music until suddenly you do like I just do it's not like I sat down at 18 and go, I'm going to have an encyclopedic knowledge of music. It just happens to be what I've put my, you know, 100,000 hours into or whatever. It's only 10,000. So if you've done 100,000... Yeah, or whatever it is, you know what I mean? Yeah, you it's, probably um, have done 100,000. Yeah, I enjoy it. It's one part of what I do and I enjoy it in much the same way that I enjoy like doing sound for picture or music for films. It's, yeah. It takes a long time and there's a lot of back and forth, but I, I enjoy it a lot and... Um, it's become a big part of what I do at the moment. So I guess it's just like, it's the same thing as looking into the faces of the people that you're playing to and knowing what you need to play next. Mm-hmm. It's not something that I can explain on a podcast or write a book about it. You either have that or you don't. And you get better at having that with experience. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? About reading a room or reading a environment or understanding what's going to work. And it's exactly the same with clothes or fashion shows, like what's going to work who's the person who's the girl you know mm-hmm. that's walking like who is she this season or who is he this season like who and then I can only bring my taste onto that but I'm not going to like impose only music that's like I would DJ out or whatever mm. you know you have to be objective in those in those situations but I have you know I walk around with four terabytes of music on a hard drive everywhere I go <laughs> just in case yeah well I mean it's you know that's what you you end up with isn't it you must get asked quite a lot for advice on how to be a DJ or whatever it is. Yeah. Do you, what do you say to people, younger people now who are trying to break their way into whatever aspect of your career they want, whether it's being a club DJ, being a Radio 1 DJ, doing a, a yeah. night like Deviation or working with, with, you know, the biggest fashion houses in the world? How, what how, well, what all do you of tell the, people? I, I, you know, I think the big mistake that, you know, when I was a kid, everyone was like, oh, I want to be like so-and-so. I want to be the next blah, blah, blah. I was always like, nah. I just want to do what's right for me. So in a way, if there is someone that's doing all the things that I'm doing, I haven't met them, you know what I mean? In the, exactly the same way. Mm-hmm. So of course I'm influenced by people as everyone is, but it's important to do what's right for you. To go back to your point about, you know, being on Radio 1 and stuff, it, it being on the radio when you listen, you know, it's certainly in the States, it means something different because people think of the radio in a different way. Yeah. When I talk about the radio, we're talking about like very specialist music culture where there's no ads, there's no like agenda, there's no playlists. If I didn't have like a blank canvas to do what I wanted, obviously Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be there. Yeah, Like that's what I do. Which is why the radio in the UK is still so special and it's hard to explain it here in New York where we are. There's there's loads of examples like like NPR and, you know, student radio and stuff like that here, but there's so much agenda. 
Yeah. Not just in America, there's a gender in the UK and everywhere all around the world. Like, oh, if you perform at our thing, then we'll put you on the playlist and da 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 da, and we've got to represent this and, you know, various different forms and everything. I'm in this like complete, like amazing, unique position where I can just play what I want. Yeah. And so it's quite a big responsibility to use that power well. Mm-hmm. And so I've always tried to do that. But for me, that was the channel. That was my channel of discovery. So we're talking about education. So much of my education came from the radio, mm-hmm. came from sitting there with a pen and paper waiting for the DJ to say what the record was or whatever, or just sitting there taping shows, like boxes and boxes of tapes of shows of shows. And so the time that it took from then for me to be on Radio One, which is a massive radio station, in that time, the meaning of it all changed. Yeah. So the ground around me changed. Yeah. So in a way, I'm quite old fashioned, even though I'm not old. Well, you're of a, you're of a, an era yeah. that no, the rules of your career don't apply anymore. Exactly. Which is why I wonder what you do say to people who are who are looking at well, trying to achieve your level of success. And, well, in a way, yeah. I mean, in a way, story in a way isn't relevant in a in a kind of follow me and you can thanks. do it like this way. I think for younger people, everyone who they might admire, the people who are culturally relevant right now actually a lot you know establish their careers in a way that is no longer um applicable mm. because it was done through channels that don't exist anymore like even in your career that's happened and so i just wonder how you know if a 20 year old dms you or whatever it is comes up to you and says i want to like if you've got any advice what do you say to them well first of all i'd always encourage them like this is it happened yesterday you know, there's a guy here who's the younger brother of a mate of mine here yeah. who's just basically like, will not stop asking me questions. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I love that because the energy is so pure. He, he's so pure with the way he's asking me the questions. It's so genuine. It's not about like, how do I get on? How do I, you know, because basically it's not the fault of anyone that that is now the context of how people are thinking. Mm-hmm. It's just what's around us. Mm-hmm. So people aren't allowed in their field to be crap for a while and get good at something. Yeah. I'm sure I was. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I'm sure that in the time when I was cutting my teeth, working out how to DJ and playing in the Dome and various little clubs in London and stuff, like, I'm sure that wasn't good. Like, I'm sure it wasn't bad, but it was like, you're learning the whole time, you're getting better. And I think that what the culture that we live in at the moment is is it makes people fall in love with the idea of something rather than the thing falling in love with the idea of being a dj is not the same thing as falling in love with music mm-hmm. or falling in love with records yeah and so it's important to have that love affair with something it's important to fall in love with what it is that you're doing mm. and then to really have the time to allow yourself to have the time to hone that craft mm. and to be able to make mistakes and unfortunately because of these devices that we're looking at right now you will have to make more dis- mistakes in public, mm. you know, and refine it as you go. Yeah. But I think that the mediums have changed. So like before, it was like only the radio where you could get your message out, you could have your musical expression, because it's not like, I'm not saying the radio of like, hi guys, we're on the radio, you know, it's not that broadcaster thing. Like I do want to be a good broadcaster, but really what I'm doing is bringing a combination of what I play in the club, as well as music to listen to on the radio. That's what I've always tried to do. And that's my medium. Mm. But I just found that medium because it's the medium that I grew up with. Mm. But in a way, the medium is less relevant than the message. So I sort of mastered that two hour format because it's what I know. Mm -hmm. But it's just the same thing as saying, oh, music is more relevant if you play it off a CD than a vinyl or if you play it off vinyl than an MP. It's not. It's about what's coming out through through the speaker. So the idea will always be more important than the medium. And so really it's about ideas, it's about taste, it's about authenticity. And I think that it's harder to be individual in this world that we're in at the moment, which is just pure sheeple culture of just conforming. If you think about like the foundations of the city that we're sitting in, in terms of culture, it was all about countering. It was all about counterculture. Now we have these channels that we're all following and everyone wants to look the same and dress the same and it's kind of a very different thing. So I think having the confidence to do your own thing is what will always set you apart. That doesn't mean like needing to be an individual for the sake of it, like what you like. But I can't speak about anything other than the culture that I know. And that culture is 
to really be true to yourself about what you love mm -hmm. in art or music or culture. And if you do that, then it's sort of bulletproof. Mm -hmm. But it's never going to happen overnight. It's just not. Like, you take your time. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. it, I mean, that's, it, that, it can happen. It's a challenge for our age, isn't it? Take your time. It doesn't, it, the, people feel that everything, there's so much immediacy to our culture. And but also, when I talk to 18 year olds and 20 year olds, the kind of money that people talk about and is expected is just completely like a different universe to what it was when I was a kid. They'd be like, oh yeah, I did this Converse gig, you know, I did this Nike gig, but I had to turn it down because, you know, they're only paying me a few grand or whatever. I was like, what? <laughs> you know what I mean yeah. it's like it's a different expectation level yeah. and that's probably good in a way because people are kind of remunerated better and paid better but to answer your question it's a really annoying answer that I'm going to give you but it's the true one which is do you like you have to do you you really have to do you like I can only do me whenever I don't do that that's when it fucks up Yeah. like if I go into an environment and I'm like oh this is a bit of a bottle service club and they're just going to want to hear like the top 10 rap tunes or whatever and I try and do that version of myself. It never works because it's mm. not like authentic, mm. you know. And then if I go into like a nosebleed techno club in Berlin or something where I'm like, okay, I can do this, I can hold my own. It doesn't work because it's not like, do what you do and then that is a frequency that comes out of the speaker mm. that people feel. Mm. You know what I mean? It's. I think people can feel if your trade is about being authentic in your chosen art form then people can definitely tune into when you're not being authentic because it's your responsibility you're basically a mouthpiece you're you know you're you there's a lot of energy involved yeah it's a lot it's all energy really absolutely so, and i was going to ask you one more question but i feel like almost you've answered it because what is the most important lesson life has taught you you know, I feel like somehow you've managed to pull out every cliche out of me. I don't know why they're all coming. <laughs> Give us some I'm, more. I'm, I'm sorry that I'm turned into such a cheese ball interview, but it really, oh God, I can't believe I'm about <laughs> to say this, but it really is not about getting there. It's about the journey. Like it's really not, I'm, I'm totally okay with that now. Like I haven't been forever. There's no destination. I'm the king of the shoulda, woulda, coulda. I'm yeah. the king of the like, oh, if I'd just done that, then da, da, da. No, 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 it's over. It's not yeah. about, I think my uh, advice to any creative person would be take what you do seriously and don't take yourself seriously. On that note, thank you, Brenji B, for speaking to us about your education. I don't know how much education we spoke about, did we? It was a lot. All right, well, thank you, Phoebe. Um, I hope you've got a good editor because that was a long ramble. <laughs> it was an interesting ramble, but wait, let me make sure I say it now. All right. How do I do that? I stop. Mm -hmm.